mom says it won't last. Your mom's an alcoholic. Escaping the cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. That's Todd, Todd Villa. Todd Zilla X-Pod. Todd Files, welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, the Todzilla X-Pod. Also, escapingthecave.com. And if you are interested in engaging in the futile, add ATC Pod on Twitter. That's all I'm going to say about that. Hello. Happy August. Summer is flying. Now, that's one thing that happens when you get older. As I speak from the chair of the sage... When you get older, the years go faster. Oh, my back. It's true, though. I've noticed that. Every year, the last 10, I keep saying, oh my god, it keeps speeding up, it keeps speeding up, it keeps speeding up. And this one's flying, man. I can't believe it. I'm back in this beautiful state for a year and a half already. After being gone for 14, I cannot comprehend that. I cannot comprehend that fall is about two months away what the hell summer's in michigan man they're too short there is no place better i've been all over this country during the summer i've been all over the place there is no place better than michigan in the summer but these summers are entirely too goddamn short man I feel like, I know it's only August 1st. I know there's at least two more months of great weather left. We have nice falls. October, early November are great here. But that winter, I can smell it. I smell the dead leaves getting ready to turn brown and fall to the ground before we even friggin' know it. Major League Baseball's trade deadline ended, so I'm back down to six people I'm following on Twitter. Uh, Back to that. Tigers made a couple of trades today like most of you care but you know we need little things being tigers fans they were threatening the all-time loss record for a single season in fact they still are but i think they've started their upswing so i'm happy about that i want to start this podcast with something positive so there's that uh now back to normal the debates second one of two were tonight i tried to watch a little bit i couldn't i saw cory booker on there bleeding about how this election's about who we are as a country. Donald Trump is just dividing us, totally oblivious to the carving up, the partitioning of society, as I talked about, via things like identity politics and victimization. Marianne Williamson, I, I, I can't believe this. Apparently, if I'm to believe the... Little streams of information. I'm kidding. She made quite an impression in the first debate this week up there in Detroit. And was one of the most searched candidates on Google all of a sudden. Marianne Williamson, isn't she like about crystals and shit? Something down that line. I want to laugh. And then I remember 2016. Everybody was laughing about Donald Trump being a candidate. (laughs) Marianne Williamson. It's not out of the realm of possibility in 2019. It's not. I'm going to tell you this right now. This election comes down to that wench, that dingbat, and Trump. I'm going to start an exploratory commission to where I may run for president in 2024. If this can happen, anybody, this is America. It's American dream. Only in America, anybody can be president. All you have to do is be... Confidently inept, I guess. 
or unqualified, confidently unqualified. Mary Ann Williamson. Oh, my God. All right, we're going to get right into this today. Early morning, August 1st, by the way. Oh, yeah, I was going to give you a digital detox update. Uh, I'm hardly watching any news. I can tell you that. Last few days, I've gone in there. I flipped it over. I, 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 I lasted about 10 minutes on CNN today. That was tonight, trying to you know do my due diligence. But I, I've, I told Matt tonight, after reading the, this propaganda book and being focused on this material for how, however long it's been, I can't watch it. It offends my sensibilities to watch that pandering and that bullshit. The tyranny of slogans, a dictatorship of slogans, as Matt so aptly put it. I cannot watch it. So that, that part's been good. Watch a lot of baseball. Haven't been engaging anything on Twitter. Had an exchange with a uh, resistance friend of mine. I told her to uh, listen to this podcast uh, specifically because she asked me why it was, how it could possibly be that I, former resistance chief Tanzilla, could possibly even consider voting for Donald Trump in 2020. And that almost went off the rails because I heard about white male privilege as if it was an accusation. She actually asked me that. Do I deny it? As, as though I'm denying an accusation of something I've been accused of and have been presumed guilty. Do I deny my guilt? And that's how I took it. I don't think she meant it that way. I don't think she really understood how my eyes were going to... See, that's the thing. When you post something on the internet, what you mean really is irrelevant. It's how it's received. Each tweet and Facebook post are in the eyes of the beholder, you see. Here's the thing. I don't have kids. But if I had kids, I would want my kids... To have every advantage they could possibly have, regardless of what skin color they have. If this is a society based on white privilege, I don't want to demote them from that. I would want them to have all of the privileges and advantages they could possibly have. This is something that blows my mind of these resistance members, these spark sniffers. <laughs> that are talking about things like this, and they want to rearrange the hierarchy of modern American society by putting the evil white beast back at the bottom of the totem pole where they belong because we need cultural reparations. We need to have a little, reap a little vengeance disguised as justice to make up for 200 years of unfairness. Yet they have kids. How does that work in your mind? Why is it to, that you want to hamstring and handicap your own children? By sending them a bill to pay a debt incurred by their great-great-great-grandfather or grand... No, it's got to be grandfather. Oh, yes. How does that work in your fucking head? I don't have kids. Thank God. But if I had kids, I'd be telling you people, go fuck yourselves. Yeah, white privilege? Okay, well, whatever. I'm white, see? And my kids are white. Therefore, I want them to have a little extra privilege so they can succeed and be successful and live a happy life. I don't want them at the, under the boot heel of the victim of the week demanding their repayment for past crimes which my kids or I didn't commit. But being the childless aberration that I am, why would I do that to myself? You can bleat about white privilege all you want. Maybe it's true. Maybe it isn't. I can see where you're coming from. Why would I give that up? It's not in my interest 
to do that. I'll get I'll get into this a little bit later. There there's a, a piece that's going to tie into something I'm going to talk about later. But there's also a line from uh, Self Reliance I found while prepping this thing tonight that fits perfectly into this. I do not have a responsibility to them. If you want to assume that responsibility, that's fine. But I don't have to. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in my own life. I'm interested or would be interested in the lives and the futures of my own children. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to actively oppress anybody. I want them to have the same access to everything that I do. But to presume that I owe a debt that must be paid because of something happened that, that happened before I was born? I get it. If I were responsible for it, I'd even get it if anybody alive today were actually slaves. Now, I know there's the institution, whatever. I'm not sure if they told you this in fart sniffer school. Life isn't fair. Some people are born into worse situations than others. Some people are born into better situations than others. See, when I was growing up, let me tell you about my white privilege there, Moonbeam. When I was growing up, living out on this dirt road, we were so poor, we didn't have a car. Yet we lived in the middle of the freaking country and this 14-room farmhouse in which we lived burned fuel oil. We were so privileged in our whiteness that we had to put a uh, gas canister on a sled and walk it five miles through a snowstorm into the nearest town to get fuel oil Walk it all the way fucking back home just to have a day's worth of heat. Oh, yes, I'm so, 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 so privileged. I don't want to hear this shit. Everybody has something in their lives that's unfair. Everybody's got something. Life is not a fair activity. It's not a fair playing field. Now, if there is some innate and institutional unfairness where you don't have the same access to something that I do, that's fine. We can fix that, and I'll be on board. I'll be right there next to you. Most people I know would. But when you start expecting me to tend to a debt, to pay for something, or reimburse you some abstract cultural debt that I... And everyone alive had nothing to do with your high. Personally, I like to go back to the founders. The people who actually founded this, this, this country on uh, abstract ideals, or at least abstract principles, even if they're imperfect, even if they, you know, maybe, maybe the principle and the ideal was bullshit then. It's a narrative, it's a fairy tale, it's a guiding principle, something to work toward as we form a more perfect union. I don't remember them saying the union was perfect. I don't remember them saying that this is like some fucking paradise on earth where everything's done the way it ought to be. No, the idea was to evolve and make it more perfect. A more perfect union, you see. I prefer to go back to those folks. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you a Thomas Paine enema here. I know it's unsolicited, but you'll like it, I think. I'm uh, taking this from the uh, Christopher Hitchens book on Thomas Paine and the Rights of Man, right? And Hitchens wrote that uh, Thomas Paine couldn't conceal his contempt for the most central tenet of Christianity. You're going to love this. 
which is the morally hideous concept, in uh, Hitchens' words, of scapegoating, or I love this phrase, vicarious atonement. See, that's what you're after. You're after vicarious atonement. Thomas Paine wrote, if I owe a person money and cannot pay him, and he threatens to put me in prison, another person can take the debt upon himself and pay it for me. That's possible. We're all familiar with that, right? But he continues, if I had committed a crime, every circumstance of the case is changed. Moral justice cannot take the innocent for the guilty, even if the innocent would offer itself. Did you keep up with that? Let me read it again. If I have committed a crime, every circumstance of the case is changed. Moral justice cannot take the innocent for the guilty, even if the innocent would offer itself. To suppose justice to do this is to destroy the principle of its existence, the existence of justice. Justice itself is destroyed because you're punishing the innocent in place of the guilty. It is no longer than justice It is, I love this, I love it when I see my own stuff in print. It is indiscriminate revenge. Continue on with Hitchens. In other words, to hope to throw your sins upon another, especially if this involves a human sacrifice. That's a grotesque evasion of moral and individual responsibility. I cannot improve upon that. That is sheer perfection, and this is the sheer perfection. This is the best display that I can find, the best articulated example of why social vengeance warriors are at their core immoral. I don't care the flavor of your flatulence. It doesn't matter. It's immorality. It's immoral to punish the innocent in place of the guilty. The guilty are dead. Just because you demand justice from somebody doesn't mean you can get it. And if you intend to prosecute and persecute and punish the innocent in place of the guilty, those fuckers are in their graves, you can't do it. Well, that's vicarious atonement. That is, as Mr. Hitchens so eloquently put it, a morally hideous concept of scapegoating. This was all triggered by the, uh, the white privilege thing and the male privilege thing. There are a lot of reasons <laughs> to take that whole, whole, whole concept of white privilege and male privilege. You need to pay a debt. There's a whole slew of reasons to take that whole concept, stuff it in a little paper bag and chuck it in a dumpster somewhere and see if it combusts. But that... This whole notion of scapegoating and vicarious atonement. You cannot atone for those sins. There is no such thing as justice anyway. It's all in your head. Ha! But maybe that's why such an abstract principle like this even gains traction because it's subjective. The concept of justice is subjective. And there's no such thing as external justice. As I've used the example before, if you think there is, why don't you go ask a toddler or an infant killed in a house fire about external justice? But if you're clinging to something that's abstract, and it is, then, well, gee, you can rationalize and ride heights elephant 
all the way to the subjective interpretation, right? Unfortunately, the problem with subjective interpretations is that they're not just subjective in one mind. Otherwise, if, if you're relying upon one person or one group of people to dictate these subjective definitions, then you're creeping down the road of tyranny, dictatorship, totalitarianism, authoritarianism. So what you got to do is you have to find a common definition of justice that everybody agrees upon because you know what's going to happen if you try to take that totalitarian route and shove this concept of vicarious atonement for past sins up my butt. We're going to abandon even the, the, the concepts of justice we've already agreed upon because now I don't trust you. Now I don't respect you. And you wonder, just you wonder, after you sniff that authoritarian fart so many times, you sniff that so many times, and then you have the oblivious gall to really sit there and go, how can you even vote for, maybe I'm voting against you. Maybe I'm not voting for Trump. Maybe it's you. Hmm. That's something to think about. Yeah, vicarious atonement. Scapegoating. Now, I know you can't see that. I know you you understand completely. Or you believe wholeheartedly, I should say, that you are on the side of right. You are on the side of God. I understand that. I'm not convincing you of anything. I understand that. I'm surprised if you're even still listening to this, Miss Lisa. And this isn't directed just at you. This is directed at a a whole swath of your cult, the congregation. Oh, it's not a church? Are you sure it's not a religion? I submit that that's exactly what it is. I think you have taken, and your like has taken, your group, your mob, your doctrinaires, have taken upon themselves, have, in, have internalized the mythology of external justice and liberalism and turned it into a political religion. Something that you do not question anymore. And I think you take it out for walks, take it door to door, engorged by the certainty, the moral certitude and self-righteousness that you are on the side of good Just fairness. But you're not. Vicarious atonement is not just. Scapegoating. Descendants of long dead people. Because you have judged and deemed a debt to be due. And you have deemed it righteous to collect from other people, either socially or monetarily. It doesn't matter. That is not on the side of good. It's convenient. If you're trying to pander, maybe, to certain elements or certain segments of the society to suck them into your cult, to take them up to the uh, punch bowl, sure. But I think you need to sit down and really think about the concept of justice, of fairness. Is that fair? Is that equality? 
I don't think so. I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know what's on your mind. And what's on my mind today is what you're thinking. And we're going to talk about psychological crystallization today. I've been uh, hitting at this for a, for a long time. This is going to be taken from Jacques Ellul's book, Propaganda Once More. And this explains fanaticism. This explains why people are so homogenized in their thought. This is the one thing about Today's uh, current political climate that has always bugged me. For 10 years, I've noticed that whenever I was engaging in political conversations, I could predict the argument before it happened. I was talking to people about this in 2009. I know that each and every one of you who are listening to this, you've had that experience. When you've been having some conversation with somebody, an argument of some sort about politics with somebody on the other side. And you knew exactly how the conversation was going to go before it even really got underway. And the reason or the thing that's behind this is psychological crystallization. Where the people have taken the propaganda that they've ingested, the propaganda that's been ejaculated into their cranium, and have taken it as gospel have taken it as truth, the Word of God. That's why they assume God is on their side. The reason behind why homogenous thought, almost like they're fabricants, prefabricants coming off an assembly line with the same imprint emblazoned into their mind. Everything they believe is the same. Now, they may repackage it differently. They may spin it differently. They may use different words and clever argumentation, but that's just a rationalization to support the generic thoughts, to protect themselves from actually having to think about the things that are coming out of their mouths. And they don't want to think about those things because they've been inseminated. And they have gotten to the point where the doctrine, the religion, the scripture. Yeah, I'm using a lot of re religious phraseology here. And <laughs> there's more coming because it's right here. I came up with this political religion thing, this ideological religion thing. I did a whole show on this uh, last February or March of 2018. I was on to this a long, long, long time ago, before anybody, before I had ever seen anybody talking about how ideology has become a religious belief. And it was one of those things, like 2014 and sniffing out the disinformation campaign. They're getting it from somewhere. Nobody else was saying that when I was. Yeah, I'm going to toot my own goddamn horn. It's my podcast. I saw this before anybody. I could not... Couldn't, I had to sit and struggle to figure this out and to try to analyze it myself. But I noticed over the course of the last year, this is becoming a big theme. 
It's always the other guy. Uh, how oh they think th- they're acting like their beliefs are a religion, but ours, on the other hand, ha, 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 we're engaging in this collective critical thought. We're the ones dropping the truth bombs. There's no such thing as collective critical thought. I've been over that. I'll probably be over it again. If you're part of a congregation, if you're part of a political organization, if you consider yourself a passionate, committed liberal, you are just religious, just as religious as those folks down in Jonestown or those heathens over there in Trump Town. You have taken it upon yourself to adopt someone else's interpretation of the world. You have taken it upon yourself not to think but to believe. And that, I think, if you're one of those folks who criticizes religion, and you folks on the left always are, well, you're doing the same thing with your ideology. What's the process to get a person, a well-intending person, I'm not condemning you as being evil. I do believe your heart's in the right place. I really do. This isn't malicious. It's not intentional. But it doesn't matter. It's not you. Have you ever... Imagine this. Say you've got six of your friends. And you're sitting at somebody's apartment. You're trying to decide which movie to go see. How hard is it to get six people to agree on a movie? Or food? Think about that for a second. And then think about how (laughs) out of the ordinary. How just utterly incredible... That everybody in your echo chamber believes the same thing. Homogenous thinking. Fabricants. Clones. How is that possible? Nobody thinks that alike in that big of a group, except in religion and politics. Maybe there's some other, I don't know, realm But those are the two that I can think of right off the top of my head. Religion and politics. Rigidity and conformity in thought. Scripture. Doctrine. I mean, why is it? How is it? What is the mechanism where people will surrender their intellectual autonomy? And I I submit that it's intellectual dignity. It's undignified to let someone else think for you. It's undignified to surrender your individuality to a group or to a doctrine or orthodoxy? How do you convince yourself? What level of gymnast, (laughs) mental gymnast are you, to convince yourself that you're still dignified while you do not have, you don't have intellectual autonomy? You cannot think for yourself that someone else is dictating this to you, dictating not only your thoughts, but your feelings. And how you feel about other people. Via the dopamine addiction, the elephant crack of self-righteousness. How is that dignified? And beyond that, how can you sit there, look in the mirror, and consider yourself an individual? You are a fabricant at that point. But there's a mechanism to this. And that's what I want to talk about if I ever get to it. And I'm going to get to it right now. Psychological Crystallization. The book is called Propaganda. The author's name is Jacques Ellul. If you're new to the podcast, this book that I've been (laughs) featuring a lot of and will a lot more, I haven't even begun on this. It gets worse, a lot worse. 
Uh, but this book uh, was written in 1965, and it's prophetic. He's talking about things in this book. Again, this is for the new listener. He's talking about things in this book where he was observing the effects of propaganda back in 1965. We're talking like over the air TV and radio and newspapers. This wasn't too long after World War II. He had Goebbels to draw from. And they'd, they'd had, uh, what, 46 years of propaganda. A little longer than that. It started in World War, World War I. They used propaganda dragged the population into supporting World War I. And it took off as an industry under the name Public Relations, Edward Bernays, after they figured out that if you can use propaganda to draw people and to, to garner support for a war, you could most certainly use it for peace. Advertising, politics, all that. Goebbels refined it a little bit more, and it's been refining itself ever since. At this point in 1965, everything he's writing in this book, with a few exceptions that are usually technological in nature, because it was 1965, primitive days. But everything else in this book describes to a T what's happening to us in 2019. How much has propaganda evolved and sophisticated itself in 54 years since this was written? How has technology... <sighs> Goebbels said that he wanted a, a radio program. His dream was to have a radio program in Nazi Germany where the entire populace, the entire population, was engaged in the events of the nation. What do you think social media is? Is there anything, any better way to get the entire nation engaged than to have a device that you can ping in their front pocket all the time. The device is always on you. They can ping you whenever they want, except when you're sleeping, and half the time they can do it then. This is, as I told Matt earlier tonight, Goebbels' wet dream. Is there any wonder we are where we are? If you read this book... I encourage you to, I implore you to get your hands on this book and read it with disconnected eyes. Don't just apply it to the other guy. Apply it to your camp as well. It will horrify you. It should horrify you. And there's no sausage party hope here. The only solution, the only protection, the only prophylactic, propagandistic prophylactic, is abstinence. You have to detach you have to get the dog out of the fight. You've got to get your identity detached. from the, You have to excommunicate from the church to where you just do not have any personal investment in the political process. And you also have to cut your access to the propaganda stream because you are, you're, you're not impervious. You are helpless, in fact, before it. You cannot resist the psychological manipulation subconsciously of this propaganda bombardment, this nonstop stream of propaganda that's coming your way every minute of every single day. You are powerless against it. I don't care what you think. You are. You got to figure out a way to detach. Good fucking luck, right? Oh, but I won't be informed. You're not informed anyway. If you're gobbling up every piece of current events information and data 
You can't process all that. You can't take that in and critically think. That thing you think is critical thought is generalizations. It's generalizing. It's stereotyping. It's getting a feeling for what box to put it in. You're not digging deep into it. You have no clear understanding of anything. You can't. Your brain isn't that powerful. You can't possibly think through all of this. You have to generalize. You have to compartmentalize and just feel it. That is the power of propaganda. The data deluge, choking on data, the current events man. I've talked about a lot of this stuff. And I will in depth moving forward, but I need to get going on this. All right, psychological crystallization. Jacques Ellul's propaganda from 1965. He starts out by saying a distinction between public and private opinion is the distinction between a collectively shared doctrine. All right, collectively shared doctrine. What you and your group collectively believe. And an opinion reached through the process of individualized critical thought. Sitting by yourself, thinking by yourself about what you, you think about these things. That is the distinction between public and private opinion. Propaganda furnishes objectives. It also organizes the person's personality into a system, a predetermined mold by which they can manipulate you. Influenced by propaganda, certain latent drives Right, Latent drives, quiet drives, internal drives that you may not even be aware of. They're vague, they're unclear, they're often without any particular objective. Under the influence of propaganda, these things suddenly become powerful, direct, and precise. They're triggering you. They are triggering you. Triggering these latent internal drives. And prejudices that are already existing about any event, anything. We all have prejudices. Sorry, Moonbeam, you've got them too. Yeah, maybe they're just stereotypes about Trump voters, but you've got prejudices. These things are greatly enforced and hardened intentionally by propaganda. And the target of the propaganda is told that he is right and just and righteous in harboring these prejudices. I keep thinking about the, the liberals. The anti-prejudice liberals who have prejudices, these preconceived notions. I'm not talking about racial prejudices, okay? Prejudice means one thing, prejudging. I keep thinking about them, the, 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 the inbred Trump voter thing. Guns, God, I don't know, whatever the other one is. You're told by propaganda that you are right in harboring these prejudices against the outgroup. can be racial. It can be. It could be a lot of things. Whatever is there, whatever is collective, whatever runs through a certain group or through a certain sect. But if it is shared collectively, then the propagandee, whoever the victim is, whoever the target is, discovers reasons and justifications for the prejudice when it's shared, when it's pronounced openly. I know you're thinking of Trump and racism, aren't you? But it goes both ways. You ever get together with your resistance friends? and start bashing on Trump voters or on conservatives in general. I know a couple of you that I've talked to personally in the last couple of months. I'm not going to name you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to shame my friends. But that's the, uh, the justification that comes from sharing it and pronouncing it openly. 
It reinforces it in your head. The elephant feels fine. And why is that important? I'm about to tell you. This hardening of an individual's prejudices permit him to resist facts and the pressure of any events that run contrary to his prejudice. Enables him to resist facts. He can exist in an alternate factual universe. That's the reinforcement that comes from having it openly pronounced within your group. A group can be three people. It doesn't have to be a mob. That's huge. And don't, don't go sitting there sniff, sniffing your own farts, liberals. I have seen you do this. I've seen you do this, I would dare say, more than I have seen Trump bots do this. You think it's okay because your target's white. There is no cognitive mental difference between having a prejudice against a group of white Trump voters than it is to have a prejudice against a group of black Obama voters. What's the difference? It is prejudice. It is bigotry. Just not how you choose to define it. But you know what? We've talked about hijacking words and definitions. How you personally choose to spin and redefine a certain word does not change the nature of the thing. And that's exactly what that is. I think if you sat down and actually thought about it for 10 minutes, objectively, without your group around you trying to, trying to break you out of that spell, trying to break you out of that critical thought spell, I think if you sat there and thought about it for 10 minutes objectively, you'd probably, assuming you have full cognitive function, you'd probably come to the same conclusion. He moves on to say that the stronger the conflicts are in a society, the stronger the prejudices. I have this in bold, in huge type, because this is hugely important. The stronger the conflicts in a society, oh, we're there, the stronger the prejudices. Propaganda that intensifies conflict intensifies the prejudices in this way. The prejudices are already inflamed. And if you have propaganda that is intensifying conflict, it just throws kerosene on the fire. We've been there for a long time. Lul also says that once propaganda begins utilizing and directing individuals, there is no chance to retreat. The individual cannot reduce his animosities or seek uh, reconciliations with opponents. The damage is done. And even if he wanted to, the propaganda won't let him. The doctrine will not let him. The sense of self-righteousness won't let him. I talked about another thing in the last podcast. His past actions may not let him. He may have done and said things that he can't walk back without doing serious damage to his ego and his public image. Especially in the day of social media. You cannot walk it back. With how, well, I'm not going to say you can't. Most people will not even bother, even risking that sort of cognitive dissonance. Propaganda also provides a supply of already made judgments. You already know how to think. You already know what you need to know about it. And these people, these issues, and everybody that's involved in them. Ready-made judgments. And a lot of times there are only vague notions in place before the propaganda set in. Foggy idea what you thought about these things, but once the ejaculate hits your cranium, you knew exactly what you thought without 
actually thinking it through. This is the insemination of opinions, part of it. You didn't think about it. You read somebody's opinion piece on it and adopted it. You didn't go through the heavy lifting of actually thinking about it. You found something that made you feel good, made you feel righteous, made you feel godly in the ideological sense, and you adopted it. And these judgments permit the uh, propagandee to face any situation. He will never again have a reason to change judgments that he will thereafter consider the one and only truth. You are not going to change his mind. He is not going to change his mind. This goes back to last year as well. The switch is internal. He has his judgments. He has his rationalizations for these judgments provided to him. He has no reason to flip that switch. This is Heights Elephant on meth. These judgments and these justifications reinforced by the group, reinforced by propaganda. This is the echo chamber. I mean, I don't need to spell this out for you, do I? We all know what this is by now, don't we? We've all experienced this either in ourselves or for ourselves with people we've interacted with. And we always probably have this dumbfounded look on our face. I can't believe he believes that. And then the problem is when you start to excommunicate, you go through the painful process of excommunication, you realize when you start looking in the mirror that you were doing the same thing. That's why people don't do it. That's why people prevent themselves from understanding what it is they're doing. Because deep down inside, the rational mind is still there. The rational mind is experiencing a very quiet and silent cognitive dissonance. And it will, the elephant and the ego, the self-rationalizing, self-righteous mind will not let you go there. Because it's horrifying. And then once you do, well, I mean, what happens? What do you, if you do that in one instance, oh my God, it might trigger something else. You might have to rethink everything. <gasps> oh my God. Anyway, this is how propaganda standardizes uh, current ideas. This is the homogenized thinking. Standardized ideas in one camp and the other. Standardized ideas hardens stereotypes. I talked about stereotypes in the last episode, how propaganda provides these stereotypes. God's gun and xenophobia. Right? It also provides thought patterns in all areas. It tells you, shows you, guides you as to how you're supposed to think. It gives you acceptable patterns of thought in all areas. Propaganda gives the individual the stereotype. He no longer has the trouble to work out for himself as well. How often do you suppose, or how many of you who have these stereotypes in your head, I've had them, but how many of you have actually taken the trouble to go out and really investigate the people you've stereotyped to find out what they really think? Have you taken the trouble to sit down and have a non-confrontational conversation with these folks and find out if, the, you know, in the, the example I keep using, they're really xenophobic. Are you sure they're really xenophobic? Are you sure they're religious nuts? Are you sure they own guns? Or is that just a stereotype that you've adopted because you like it and it makes you feel good and uh, elevated, evolved, superior? Propaganda furnishes these things in the forms of labels, slogans, slogans. Oh, the slogans are fucking fantastic. Also, these ready-made judgments. 
Now, propaganda transforms ideas into slogans. Ideas into slogans and uh, by giving, quote-unquote, the word, the scripture, the doctrine, the religion, the orthodoxy. Oh, there are so many words to choose from. Convinces the individual also. You ready for this? Convinces the individual that he has an opinion. <laughs> no, he has commandments by which to live his life. Properly and appropriately, of course. So in this way, it codifies. Codifies social, political, and moral standards. I'm going to say that again. It codifies, standardizes, social, political, and moral standards. This is a plague as well. Now, symbols are a big part of this. He goes into this a little bit. Uh, related to the psychological phenomenon of the stereotype. The symbol is related to the stereotype. So if you have a problem like these, um, I don't know, these Confederate statues, that's a symbol. It's a symbol that people rallied around as something evil. It's related to the stereotype of the Republican racist, the Southern racist. I have lived down south. I lived in the Florida Panhandle. <laughs> I was stationed in Millington, 10 O.C., I've traveled through there. I've been through there a lot. There are a lot of racists down there, but they're not all racists. But you've stereotyped them that way, haven't you? As have I. It's true. But since you've stereotyped the Southern man as a racist, now the symbol of the Confederate statue has tied itself into that. And it's triggered you through your stereotype to action. Tear down the symbol. That is a propaganda-induced action that I was talking about before. Active and passive actions. Active people down there marching, trying to get them torn down, while your uh, passive action, taking to the social media and clicking likes on everything that says the Southern man is a racist and these statues are literally evil. They don't represent Southern heritage at all. They represent racism. They're not allowed to have a heritage. They're not allowed to have their own symbols of pride because you find them distasteful. Do you see how it's codifying things, how the symbol works, how it's tethered to the stereotype? That's a really good example. Now, the stereotype is also the supposed value judgment. You've got the stereotype of the Southern man. It's a value judgment. He's bad, therefore, since you are not the Southern man, you are, quote-unquote, unracist. Oh, I'm not racist at all. Well, that is a self-value judgment. And this is all acquired by belonging to a group and without any sort of intellectual labor. Insemination. You didn't think this through. You didn't go wandering around Alabama to find out if everybody down there was a racist. Oh, no, you just became part of the group that says everybody in Alabama is a racist and therefore avoided the intellectual labor. I can do this for the Trump bots as well. There are a lot of racists out there that do the same thing to black people, that do the same thing to Mexicans. It doesn't matter. It all works the same. I'm using you, liberals, because you think you're immune to it. And your variety, your brand of propaganda, is becoming really totalitarian. I know you don't see it, but it is. That's why I'm using you. Because you seem to think, again, you seem to think you're immune to this, like you've been inoculated at birth by the, the holy patron saint of liberalism. You're no better than the Trump bots in this regard, I'm sorry to say. 
The stereotype also reproduces itself automatically with each stimulation. That's self-explanatory. Every time you log on to your Twitter account or your Facebook page and you see a meme or you see an example, an extreme example, real or not, doesn't matter. It can be contrived. I think I could probably discuss uh, Vladimir Putin and the, um, the the last election interference campaign when I talk about things that are contrived, where you take a, an extreme example of the outgroup, show them to be evil, Satan. Whether it's real or not does not matter. That reinforces the stereotype as soon as you see it. That's why people love to share things, and I do this too. I admit it. I still do it. Nobody is impervious to this. But that's why people take these extreme examples of the other guy and start passing it around their echo chamber because it reinforces the stereotype. It's insidious. The next one's pretty obvious. These stereotypes arise from uh, feelings a person has for one's own group, self-superiority, or against the out-group. And liberals are really peculiar in uh, this, uh, this regard when it comes to uh, white men, to the white devil. How they feel about their own group or against the outgroup. What if they're one and the same thing? What if you're a white man condemning white men? How does that work in your fucking head? What is the white equivalent of House Negro? I have not gotten my hand, my head around that. I have ideas about it. And I could go on a 20-minute rant here if I wanted to. Real easy. About what's going to happen to you. If you get what you want and your position is lowered to the bottom of the cultural totem pole, do you think they're going to like you then? They like you now because you're beating yourself in front of them. Bad whitey, what's going to happen if they get what they want? If you help them succeeding in getting what they want, do you think they're going to love you? You're fucking high. What are you doing? That doesn't even run down the dignity line. Self-dignity. Having just a little bit of dignity, a little bit of pride. Instead of being judged by the worst of your race, you sound like a Catholic boy who's bemoaning the fact he has a dirty penis. What is wrong with you? Stop that. Have some dignity. I must move on because I have a lot more, but I could go on and on. You're welcome. The propaganda also uh, attaches himself passionately uh, to the values represented by his group. And when there's passion, there's not critical thought. Passionately to the values represented by his group and, at the same time, rejects the cliches of the outer group. Even though they mirror his own. It's a peculiar thing. He also says that to share the prejudices of a group is only to demonstrate one's affiliation to this group. Virtue signaling. There's this guy named Stencil that he uses that he quotes that says the stereotype is a matter of thinking, of interpreting experience, a, 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 a matter of behaving, but is found solely, I swear to God he says this, on emotive reactions. Jonathan Height, come on down. You're the next contestant on. Who's going to clean up this pile of elephant shit on the floor? Says a stereotype, which is stable. And the stereotype's always stable. Helps man to avoid thinking. It helps man to avoid taking personal positions to form his own opinion. They're already there via the stereotype. The man reacts constantly, as if by reflex, 
in the presence of the stimulus evoking the stereotype. This reflex permits him to have a ready-made, though apparently, apparently, the keyword is apparently spontaneous opinion in any situation. Does that sound familiar to you? Let me repeat that. The reflex permits him to have a ready-made, though apparently spontaneous, <laughs> opinion in any situation. In fact, it gives him the sense of the situation. It defines the situation for him. And with regard to an ethical problem, the stereotype is the criterion of values. The stereotype defines the values in an ethical situation. It's usually formed in a limited group, but tends to develop to extend itself to an entire collective. It's a virus. It's endowed with a force of expansion. <laughs> Moreover, it gradually detaches itself from the primordial images that have aroused it and then takes on a life of its own. It detaches itself from the original spawning thought and takes on a life of its own. Maybe this is how you go from lobbing racist bombs, racist bombs at things like Charlottesville. Maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong. But racist suddenly came into the, it became a crutch. It became uh, sort of a cliche of choice. Uh, the utility word, like fuck, to lob at the guy I disagree with. It's a wonderful, wonderful. It's become a, a utility word, like fascist. You don't even know what fascist means. You don't even know if that person's a racist, but by God, he's got to be. It's detached itself, maybe from Charlottesville, where it was used specifically, and now it has a life of its own. You're just throwing it around, throwing it around. It's a stereotype. The racist Trump supporter. Yeah, it has a life of its own. He uses a really good example here. He says to ask a group what it thinks of some sentence written by Victor Hugo results in the Hugo stereotype. Because they already know who Victor Hugo is, they'll base their opinion on what they think of Victor Hugo. But if they ask their opinion of the same sentence without giving the author, without saying who it's coming from, it evokes no stereotype and elicits a very different opinion. Think about that. I mean, a lot of the stuff that people condemn in Trump or, I don't know, pick a liberal, if you were to take that thought and take the name off of it and put it in front of the same person who would hate the sentence because it was uttered by Trump or, say, Elizabeth Warren. If you were to take that sentence and put it in front of them and take the name off of it, they would give you a completely different opinion of what they think of the sentence because they'd actually read the sentence without it being tainted by the, the author. Well, on that note, I think I've got to break this up now. I apologize for that. If I don't, this thing's going to run probably right around two hours long. And I really, I really don't want to do that. I'd rather do two episodes than one that long. So I encourage you to tune in probably tomorrow. This is already recorded. <laughs> it's ready to go. I just have to throw it up there. We're going to get into things like slogans. That's coming up immediately when this thing resumes. I've also got uh, collective belief and obsession rationalization, building monolithic individuals, crystallization and how it closes minds and a glorious piece on the religious personality created by propaganda. 
And there's a chunk in there about the similarity between the propaganda and what they were describing as the neurotic back in the mid-1960s. Anxiety, seeing things in only black and white. Does it sound familiar to you? It should. Check out the website, escapingthecave.com. And if you dare, check out the Twitter feed as well. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next time. So long.